Living Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And I'm delighted today to have Dr. Bob Hinkle, an old friend and colleague who I knew so many years as the Chief of Interpretation with Cleveland Metro Parks, or maybe it was Chief of Outdoor Education and uh, as a title, but we'll learn more about Bob today in his long and interesting career. So welcome, Bob. These days, I believe you're retired and living in Florida right now. Is that correct, Bob? No, I'm, I'm in Cleveland. Tim. Oh, you're in Cleveland. We, I'm in Cleveland still. We, we go to Florida um, two weeks in December and two weeks in uh, February just to break up the winter. We've got a little timeshare couple of weeks uh, each down there so well great in another week two weeks i'll be in florida again well we're we're suffering through warm beautiful weather here on the big island so we'll be thinking uh, <laughs> you in florida we've got eight inches of snow outside here oh my but i always remember the brag from those of you who live in cleveland about having record snowfalls due to the lake effect. Is that what it's called? Right, right. So you, you do have a big lake there that gives you a lot of moisture. Yep. Comes well, over yeah. the land and drops, and here we are. Did you grow up in Very. Ohio, or did you grow up further north? I grew up in south-central Michigan. Okay. A uh, little town called Hillsdale. There's a college there. And... Uh, Spent a lot of time, my, my, my mom and dad both hunted and fished. So I spent a lot of time uh, with them uh, year round doing those activities, being outdoors a lot of the time. I think that's what kind of got me comfortable in the outdoors. Started my love for things that were wild and free. In fact, you're sounding very Aldo Leopoldian right there. Well, <laughs> my hero. Yeah, mine as well. Yeah. I was astonished reading your uh, CV that I didn't know how deep your background was in wildlife. I, I have known you mostly as chief of what is it outdoor education you in uh -huh. in uh, cleveland metro parks and didn't realize how deep an academic background you had in wildlife yeah it uh, i was uh started out in electrical engineering oh my Ew. surprisingly enough that's <laughs> that's what i said after the first semester yeah wouldn't take me oh, that uh, yeah, I had a, a fellow on the floor of the dorm that I was living in who was a, who was in wildlife management, and I thought, gee, you know, maybe I'd, I'd switch my uh, avocation for for my uh, things that I enjoy doing on my own, and uh, I switched over to wildlife management. I was really fortunate in having a tremendous uh, academic advisor, Dr. Gilbert Mosier was his name. And uh, he guided me through my bachelor's degree and 
when I decided to stay on, he, through his encouragement, he decided I didn't didn't want to manage wildlife. I, I should really be teaching teachers, perhaps even take his place when he retired. So I ended up taking every every wildlife course and and nearly every zoology course that Michigan State had to, had to offer over those years. So my, my background's fairly deep in the in the wildlife sciences. And uh, that came came to be useful later on, as we'll discuss. Yeah, I I seem to recall reading something in there about you actually having some involvement with telemetry with wildlife. Yeah, I did, did um, out in Vermont. Well, let me back up a little bit. When I was uh, when I finished my my doctorate, my first job was staying right there uh, after Dr. Mosier retired and teaching the classes that he was teaching for another two years. So in 1978, I decided that uh, I could stay at a university that had 42,000 students, or I could search elsewhere. And I found a, a little state college out in Northern Vermont, uh, Northern Vermont University at Johnson. And they were looking for a wildlife guy who also could teach uh, some other things like agriculture and the environment and, and environmental issues and ethics and a few of those other things. And so I, I applied. They flew me out for a job interview, said it, it would be a couple of weeks before they'd decide. And they called me back the following Monday and said, how'd you like to come to, to Vermont? and uh, be a part of our faculty out here. So that didn't take long to decide. I, I had to check and make sure I knew which state up there was Vermont, uh, <laughs> yeah. whether New Hampshire or Vermont or, or just exactly which was where. That's yeah, uh, something up there. Yeah, yeah some one of those Northern states where there's a lot of snow and all kinds of uh, fun critters. So I took that position and uh, ended up teaching those courses. Uh, I also taught uh, during the winter break. Uh, our winter breaks were a month long up there. The month of January was so snowy and so cold that the college closed for the whole month of January. So I ended up teaching during that month for an organization called the Center for Northern Studies up in Wolcott, Vermont, and we were looking for a project. And uh, because of my background in electronics as a ham radio operator and, and other things, I thought that it, wildlife telemetry would be interesting to, to get students involved with. So we originally were going to work on rough grouse, but uh, we ended up missing too many of those yeah. <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> they just just didn't want to be caught. Yeah. So I I, I stopped and and asked myself what the what the most likely creature to to be able to capture and work with uh, I came up with porcupines. 
And it turned out that, that very little had been done with porcupines. There was a, a study in the 50s uh, by a gentleman named Shadle that uh, proved that porcupines could run a maze more accurately than a rat could wow. the second time. And that kind of got me intrigued. The fact that they uh, were plentiful out there, uh, even though they had 30,000 30, quills on their on their backs. Turns out you, they didn't have any underneath. And if you were quick, you could scoop them right off the ground with your oh my. with your hands. Uh, and I, I did that several times. I paid the price once when I dropped one, and <laughs> he uh, kind of kind of backed him in a corner to try and catch him again. He flipped that tail and got me. But uh, that's all part of the joy of. Uh, working with wildlife, you know, they're, they're uh, intent on self-preservation. And if you're in the way, things happen. So, so I did. Anyway, we uh, uh, ordered radio collars and wildlife telemetry receivers and, and uh, wired up a, a couple of porcupines with collars that would wear and drop off after a few months and started off with uh, two porcupines that were radio tagged that first winter. They didn't travel more than about a mile from where we, 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 we released them. One, in fact, climbed a hemlock tree and didn't come down for 14 days. Uh, we ended up working with a, few, a couple other pairs of porcupines over the next uh, three years. We were just getting into beavers when I came to Cleveland. I don't know where you ordered your materials from, but in 1971 or two, I was working for Wildlife Materials, Inc. in Carbondale, Illinois, and I made porcupine collars, and I, I made uh, uh, telemetry, I finished telemetry units that went on songbirds, and uh, I made Actually, the capture nets that were used to capture Jonathan Livingston Seagull uh, for a movie made called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Right. I, I suspect the seagulls didn't call him Jonathan Livingston, but um, the company that was making the movie ordered the nets from us, and I built the nets. But uh, Wow. I started this, this work in 70, 79. Yeah. So, well, but we, we ordered our our uh, receiver uh, and transmitters from Wildlife Supply, I think. Yeah, I don't know uh, the companies later on. I don't know, but back then, a a young man who, like yourself, had an interest in uh, electrical engineering was getting a PhD with Dr. Willard Klimstra at. Uh, Southern Illinois University, and he, I, I think he dropped out before he got the degree, but he, part of the reason he dropped out is he started making capture equipment like cannon nets and telemetry equipment, and it sold so well that he soon had a business that demanded all of his time, and wow. he hired me as a worker, and it was, it was pretty interesting work because I would sit and uh, put howitzer powder in a little plastic bag and stick an electronic match down in the center and then tape the whole thing up. And those were the charges used to, 
uh, shoot cannon net. I forget what they called them, but the little thing that would be shot out of the cannon that would carry the net over the geese and that sort of thing. And we, yeah. uh, porcupines was one of our orders at one time. I don't remember who, but interesting. I'll be darned. Well, like you, I, you know, I, as a kid, I thought I wanted to be a biologist. I, uh, and my zoology department, I dubbed later the department of necrology. Cause I think in, in an entire bachelor's degree, they didn't show us a live animal larger than a protozoan. Um, hey. they showed us chickens once we actually mapped roosters doing territorial stuff, but, uh, it, it didn't capture my imagination, so I switched to botany for a master's. When you moved over to Cleveland Metro Parks, what was the appeal? Because you were kind of changing careers in a way. Well, I, I was and I wasn't. Um, others have said I, I was always a naturalist, always an interpreter, always interested in helping other people understand the outdoors and things that were happening around them and and how it all related to to them and, and their interests and, and their lives. I uh, first discovered what a naturalist was on a field trip to uh, Fenner Arboretum in Lansing. And there was a woman there named Joan Brigham, who uh, was one of those dances with light people uh, who captured your interest and imagination with uh, whatever she said. And I just went out to take a look at this building that they called the Nature Center. And she greeted us at the door and uh, took us around to see the exhibits. It was a quiet day, engaged us uh, so that by the time we left, we felt like we were kind of a part of the place. And I decided at that point that uh, environmental interpretation was kind of the direction that I'd like to go. And in the way that I was doing it, there wasn't too much difference between between that and teaching classes, I think. Um, I felt like I was the, the revealer in, in a lot of the things that, uh, that I taught. Later on, when I was working on my doctorate, uh, Paul Risk was working on his as well. And he took the classes that I had to teach, and I took the classes that he had to teach. We ended up graduating together on the, on the same day in December of 81. No, December 79. Had stayed in touch, of course, ever since. Um, he stayed at Michigan State for a while longer than I did. But uh, there were there was always a group of us that we were we referred to as risks rangers. Um, he set up opportunities to do interpretive programming for school groups and and campus groups and so forth as ways to practice the art and uh, be critiqued afterwards. And I knew at that point that. I would always be in interpretation in one way or, or another. Coming to Cleveland, um, I had internal factors and external factors, I guess. Uh, my, my mother had had a heart attack. They lived in South Central Michigan, where I grew up. 
and the economy was in the dumper in the early 80s, if you recall. Dude. And I decided that, that I would uh, uh, leave Vermont and see if I could find something in the Midwest. And this position for chief naturalist, uh, as it was called at that point, at Cleveland Metro Parks was open. And I, I'd known Harold Wallen for years. Yeah. Oh. He, he, he retired in 76, I think. And they had a couple of fellows uh, uh, come in after him that didn't last too long. But I thought, gee, what a great opportunity to work for an organization that I knew was was large and, uh, from what I could tell, progressive. So I applied and uh, was selected as one of the th three finalists. There was a uh, one fellow... Um, Ralph Ramey, in fact, you may Ralph. remember Ralph. Yeah, he was, he was a finalist as well. And Ralph knew everybody by name, you know, all the people on the committee and so forth. And I figured, well, gee, I'm just here for cannon fodder. And uh, <laughs> I've been that before. I know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> just, just to give it some outside credibility when I started selecting Ralph. But uh, they told us when we left that, same sort of thing would be contacting us within two weeks. And they called me the following week and offered me the position. So I said yes and uh, uh, moved out to Cleveland. Um, they had an, an agenda that they wanted taken care of. There were, were uh, a number of transfers that had to be made and, and uh, people that needed additional training and some encouragement, I think. So I tried to fill all those roles during the, the first uh, five or six months that I was there. Um, it was difficult in some ways. People that I had to transfer weren't real happy about it, of course, having been left with basically no supervision for many months. And uh, it ended up working out. We, uh, I started out with seven full-time people um, and one part-time. And I ended up, when I left, uh, I retired with 37 full-time people. Wow. And whatever, whatever the math is there, 39 part-time. So I was, I was there at a time of tremendous growth, and I was real, really excited about that every day. It was fun to get up and go to work. We built uh, three new nature centers while I was there. Um, you were there at, at uh, Canal Way, I think. Yes. We did a, a CIP there. Yeah, interpretive uh, planning course that Lisa yeah. led. Yeah. Maybe two of them. I'm not, I'm not well, sure, but... We came back and worked with you on a logic model for the stewardship center. That's right. That's right. By the way, one of the highlights of my interpretive planning experience working with Lisa, because I learned so much from her, but your project was a real model for how a logic model could be applied and made more useful by engaging like your ecologist and your 
management team and your interpreters. And it, it was a, it was a lot of fun and I felt we learned from it as well as the folks involved. Great. That was a, it was a good experience. Um, and I think the center turned out nicely, just, just like we liked it. They moved wildlife biology over there and, uh, uh, the interpreter staff, of course, and it's ended up filling multiple roles in pressing watershed management and, uh, the idea of what a watershed is to the public. Well, I think the fascinating thing for us is we had heard for uh, years about the Cuyahoga River catching on fire like nine times in the last hundred years. And you were, that stewardship center was on the watershed of the right. West Creek. West Creek. Yeah. Right. And so... It was fascinating to be in a location that was famous for how things go wrong when you pollute waterways and to be working on something that was more idealistic about citizen science and about best management practices and just really a lot of great direction. And you mentioned something. I've got to backtrack for a moment. I recollect at all the early meetings I went to of the Association of Interpretive Naturalists, seeing Harold Wallen and his wife, Lois. Yeah, Harold was uh, a big part of AIN for a long time. I recall once, well, in fact, it was the first AIN meeting I was at in uh, Salt Fork State Park down in southern Ohio the year they opened. And they had a lot of students that went down. We had I think six from our our university and others from Purdue and other places where interpretation was starting to to take hold. And there was a general session and um, it was full. Harold came out, looked around and and said, I don't know what we're going to do. He said we we only have room for six hundred people and we have all these all these students, and I thought the future's uh, knocking at the door of AIN. Yeah, absolutely. Later on, I was a founding member of uh, of uh, NAI and a life member. Um, we were. I was only lucky to be at that conference for a day and a half. It turned out that was election day. And we had a levy. So the director let me fly out, do a presentation, have dinner, and fly back. <laughs> St. Louis, 1988. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was that was uh, that was fun from what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't there for very long. It was but, a uh, it was a big meeting. Lisa was the program workshop chair or program chair program chair, and she couldn't attend because she happened to be getting ready to have, I believe, her first child. And so uh -huh. uh, she she reminds me occasionally that she missed that one. But I had just served for three years as the president of AIN and worked with Alan Kaplan on bringing the consolidation together. So 88 was kind of tour de force. It was fun. It was a chance to see the new organization blossom. Um, 
I keep reminding, they keep saying they're 30 some years old and I keep reminding them that the organization's 69 years old, that it goes back to 1954, not, yeah. uh, there's a lot of us that remember the older two organizations. So uh, you were working on a cruise boat as well back then in some of those years. I was, I had a, a, a lucky happenstance, one of my former students was uh, was director for a small cruise ship company that their boats only carried about a hundred people. And they had decided they were going to do a Great Lakes cruise. And it hadn't been done in 30, 30 years. Um, and they wanted a naturalist that they knew was competent. <laughs> and she, of course, was fairly fresh out of out of my my courses and graduated just after I left Michigan State. So she called me and said, would you like to do this? And uh, I went to my director and said, you know, can I take two weeks of my vacation time and uh, go off and cruise the Great Lakes and be a ship's interpreter? And he said, by all means, you may never have the chance again. Little did he know. So, so I uh, I uh, flew up to M Montreal and we boarded the boat and went up the, up the St. Lawrence out to Saguenay uh, Fjords for beluga whales and uh, on out just a little further than turned, came back up the St. Lawrence um, through the Thousand Islands and uh, up into Lake uh, Ontario, made a couple of stops there, and then down into Lake Erie and uh, up into uh, past Detroit, up, up into the Georgian Bay, and stopped at several of the smaller ports. Because it was a small ship, we could get into places that larger cruise ships in later years couldn't couldn't make it. They, they had to launch Zodiacs all the time and shuffle people in and out. But we were able to uh, get into established docks a lot of the time and disembark passengers. It was an interesting philosophy of cruising. We were we were traveling during the night and on shore most days. So people had a a, a daily experience or their choice of more than one if they wanted as opposed to the ship being the entertainment the the history and the shore was the entertainment there also was a, was a historical interpreter on board uh, he was from canada so he he filled in a lot of the um, parts of uh, the history of the united states and canada war of course and, that uh, happened between the two and the invasion of Canada by the U.S. and all those sorts of things. He always, he always kind of tickled the, the people on board. They he referred in Canada. Apparently, they referred to the the War of 1812 as the War of of uh, American Aggression. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I had no idea that uh, the cruise industry was working the Great Lakes 
And uh, I should know that because guess what? They're virtually everywhere. Steamships work the Mississippi River and uh, the inland passage to Alaska from Seattle is an important corridor. It makes sense that the St. Lawrence Seaway would be. And we yeah. um, just up by the Thousand Islands area, we did a planning course at one point, Lisa and I did, and beautiful, beautiful. Oh, it is. Gorgeous area. Well, we went, out, we went on up through the Georgian Bay uh, uh, into Lake Huron and across into Michigan for a stop over there. And then went up and went through the Straits of Mackinac wow. under the under, under the bridge uh, back up and up the St. Mary's River into uh, Lake Superior for a short time, just so we could say we'd been in all the Great Lakes disembarked up in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, at a former Air Force base that was turned into a, a commercial airport. But uh, fa fascinating experience. Yeah. It's, it's really challenging because you have to be uh, one of the first up every morning and one of the last to go to bed. And you're not just interpreting, but you're also engaging people all the time. I managed to uh, do some other of those cruises. The one I think that we did the most was uh, from Charleston to Jacksonville in a cruise called the Antebellum South. Wow. That was again on shore every day, looking at the history of the, of the uh, areas we visited. Beaufort, North Carolina, South Carolina. We did fairly short hops at night in between some of the the um, most interesting and and major historical sites along the way between Charleston and uh, uh, Jacksonville on a seven-day cruise. And again, a lot of natural history, a lot of a lot of birds, birds especially. How many years did you do cruise boat interpretation? I think I did it for almost 10 years, uh, again, on vacation time. It was something so different from what I had been doing, uh, the administration, and I did do programming as well. I just couldn't stand to be without an audience sometimes. You know how that, <laughs> how that, is. How that goes. My age, I'm doing a podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, you may or may not remember, but the Certified Interpretive Guide course was born on a cruise boat. Um, I was up in Seattle doing some training with uh, Glacier Bay Tours and Cruises and uh, Dominic Canelli from Denali Aramark Tours, later Denali Doyon Aramark Tours, uh, was in, in the audience. He had just come along to listen, and he said, boy, we need this kind of course for our guides up at Denali National Park that drive buses back into the backcountry. And the beginning of an idea to create the CIG course. So, and their cruise boats talked about, they said, you want some burnout, work on a boat where you get up in the morning and guests are talking to you at breakfast and then you work all day and then they talk to you at dinner and you actually have to go to your cabin to escape. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know what that's like. 
Very, very true. And uh, I also ended up doing Alaska. You did? Um, yeah. We, we went into Anchorage and then came out of uh, Seward and worked our way down through the, the islands oh, that's and back up again and left it uh, at Juneau. I did that twice. Yeah. I've not seen Southeast Alaska. Uh, we have a son, uh, Lisa's younger son, that uh, spent a year up there and enjoyed it very much in Ketchikan. But uh, I've not been there. I've been to Alaska, but not Southeast. Yeah, it's a fascinating place. Very beautiful. A little sideline in the middle of all this. You've been a ham operator forever, right? 52 years, yeah. How did that start? Well, my father was a journeyman electrician. And uh, he was interested in radios, although he never did much with it. Um, and when I was about 10, because um, he knew I was kind of interested in whatever this thing was called ham radio, uh, he took me out to uh, meet an older fellow who lived on a farm who had a station that he'd largely built himself. And uh, we sat and listened, fascinated, as he talked to the people in different places around the world. Um, for Christmas that year, I got a radio receiver so I could listen too. But it wasn't until I got to Michigan State and joined their ham radio club that I got my first license and then my second and I just recently finished my third the FCC issues licenses after you take their exams there used to be a Morse code requirement but there no longer is currently there are more ham operators in the U.S. than there have ever been I didn't um, know that. a lot of them a lot of them um, got their licenses for emergency service work sure i to be able to coordinate i'm afraid what little i know about it comes from sitting at those black and white tv sets in the 1950s and hearing someone say this is uh cng 875 chinese national guard 875 <laughs> and i would tell my dad i said dad could there be somebody from the chinese national guard broadcasting over our tv set he said, no, no, that's a ham radio operator. It's a friend of mine who's an electrician, and <laughs> that's a, that's his call letters. <laughs> that, was, that was back when the frequencies, at least one of the bands of frequencies that hams could operate on was woefully close to one of the, one of the TV uh, set frequencies. The advent of cable, that's all gone, so... Yeah, but ham radio is alive and well, and it it did with the cell phone. Certainly is, yeah. Cool. We, we we speaking of which, we continued that radio telemetry project when I got to Cleveland. We wanted to do a study of urban white-tailed deer. No one had done a whole lot with what was going on in parks in terms of what deer did and where they went and how they fed and how they passed their time. Most of the books at the time, um, I think Mammals of Michigan even said that uh, 
Most whitetails seldom traveled more than a mile to a mile and a half from the place they were born. So we uh, rigged up some collapsible cages so we wouldn't have to uh, tranquilize the animals because they, they wouldn't come into the traps except during snowy times in the winter uh, when they got in the trap far enough that over would, would trip and fall down and the traps were collapsible so we could go out and basically just force the animal down long enough to get a, a tag in one ear and for the toes a radio collar. Right. And we ended up trapping and tagging, I think, of 20-some does over the period of three years and found that they traveled, well, one, one was roadkilled 52 miles away. Oh, wow. And never knew if it was going out or coming back. Yeah. So um, there were a few that stayed a mile, mile and a half away, but um, we could track them, of course, with the directional antennas through the neighborhoods and a lot of them would come up at night up the, the draws that went down to the river valley and feast on uh, all kinds of interesting and uh, expensive plants. Um, yeah. We always got the call, you know, your, your deer are up here eating my plants. <laughs> I've been there. I. I planted a bunch of uh, three-inch diameter cottonwood trees at the Nature Center I ran in Pueblo. And then I came in the next day to find beautiful beaver stumps about two feet high. Oh, gee, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, about $1,000 worth of trees lying on the ground. So, oh, gosh. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Such is resource so, management uh, with wildlife, right? Yeah. These are the things we learn. What are you most proud of, of your Cleveland Metro Parks years? Because you did a lot of different things. Well, I think I'm most proud of my staff. Um, Boy, good people. I know a lot of them. I hired some great people and coached them. Have a lot of oversight on uh, daily operations. I hired good managers and, you know, people like Ken Gover and well, I've I've met many of those good people that work for you, and I agree that I think the best management principle with staff is hire good people and set some boundaries and let them do their stuff and let them do it there. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, as you probably know, we have one of your uh, nature center managers went to Africa with us this year and is going back with us next year. So, got her bags half packed already. I think. I think she told Lisa that, uh, Sharon Hosko, who I also did a podcast with, uh, is a great photographer and uh, good birder and wildlife enthusiast. And so we've had a good time getting better acquainted. I knew her a little bit through NAI, but uh, much better through traveling through Serengeti and Tanzania. You wrote a lot as a part of your work. So I was asked to do a, a, a monthly column for the park newsletter called the Emerald Necklace. And I ended up doing over 300 articles by the time I was retired. It was, it was fun. I think I 
did some pretty good stuff. Um, I got a lot of positive feedback from staff and especially visitors. Um, Ernest Hemingway, I think, said, there's nothing to write in. You just sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> and uh, some days that was about what it was. Um, if I was struggling, my secretary would bring me a Nestle's Crunch in the morning and say, here, here's your, here's, here's your sugar. We'll close the door and come out with an article. So... <laughs> Really, the emerald necklace is kind of a famous concept, uh, Cleveland. And who was it developed that? That was um, Frederick, Fred, Frederick Law Olmsted, who went from Cleveland on to Boston to develop the same sort of chain of parks that uh, became recreational and sort of escape grounds for people from the city. When ours was established, there weren't, weren't many trees. What there were were second growth short, but they've grown into magnificent forests. It truly is em emerald green. I, I I looked once at a at a satellite photograph from space, and you can see it. Where the where the trees are surrounding the city of Cleveland, out in the suburbs, it's that big an impact. Well, I think of the concept in more recent years has been of cities creating a greenway and having a bike trail that traverses it, but that really very much started in the eastern United States with those like the Emerald Necklace in Cleveland and the one around Boston. Chicago has a similar thing with DuPage and Forest County Forest Preserves and Cook County Forest Preserves. And what a great thing, because those cities became such metropolitan sprawls. And to have hung on to some natural areas and actually improve them uh, was a wonderful concept. And it, it serves the future well, because it keeps a city from just being a bunch of concrete and buildings and yeah we, we we've done that there's any one of a number of bike paths that interconnect um outside the park and then have spurs going down into the park and that just keeps uh keeps adding every year it's 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 been a big goal and uh it's getting achieved in ways that I think beyond what people thought it would be. Um, biking is becoming more and more of a of a recreational activity, and these bike paths and their walking paths at the same time serve the purpose of getting people down into the down into the parks. Yeah, we we did an interpretive planning course in the Netherlands. And I was so impressed with how they facilitated people commuting by bicycle or uh, taking their family bicycling on weekends through the incredible bike paths, uh, parking areas for bikes, uh, other amenities like restrooms and things. And I'm, I'm delighted that we're doing that in the U.S. now. And I, I wanted to ask you, 
you had mentioned in one of the talks that you gave uh, when you received an award, and you can remind me of which award it was, but about the thin green line and giants. That was uh, a talk that I gave New Orleans. What was the occasion? I was selected as the outstanding senior retired interpreter. I gave this little this little speech. Kind of centers around the urbanization of the country and the the distance that people have these days from the resource. The resource is and it talks about how they enjoy seeing wildlife, but few are realizing that the things they love are disappearing from loss of habitat, urban expansion. And once they're gone, this natural heritage and cultural heritage disappears forever. But for those who never knew the heritage, it's as if it never existed. I wrote, we then, you and me, and the newest part-time interpreter are the, are the thin green line. We've been sent by those before us to protect what they have protected, to save what they have saved. Your lineage goes back through the mists of time from a past too dim to see shamans and medicine women, storytellers and scribes and journalists and explorers and naturalists, all keepers of the flame, carried the message of heritage the sacredness of the land and our connection with all things wild and free. All of that comes ringing down from Bradford Woods to New Orleans, Louisiana this very night. There were giants on the earth in those days, the book of Genesis tells us. Pioneer nature guides like Enos Mills and naturalists and interpreters like John Muir and Freeman Tilden, Claire Marie Hodges, and Aldo Leopold created the first gift of heritage interpretation for millions. Within my lifetime, there came others like Paul Risk, Grant Sharp, Howdy Weaver, and Harold Wallen, Bob Jenkins, Bruce McHenry, Bert Zabo, and Pat Ising, Mary Jane Dockery, and Pappy Wells, giants who gave shape to our profession and passed the best of the practices on to three generations of students. And there are giants among us still, people like Ken Gober and Ray Novotny, Will Redding and Tim Merriman, Fred Woolley and John Schaus, D.B. Coquard, Kirkwood and Amy Royale, Anne Bagetta and Sam Baxman, Lisa Brochu, to name but a few. Your mentors, the giants, long ago they prepared the way for the coming of this day for you. It was once said that when we see farther, we see because we stand on the shoulders of giants and each of them is linked not by bonds of blood, but by a calling, by bonds of a common vision and purpose and by lives that are filled with giving and hope and daring and joy and doing what's right for our future and the future of the earth that, that will be inherited from us. And so these and others may be your, your, our interpretive giants today that you must remember this, you are interpreters. You are that link. You are that thin green line. That's all that's kept the earth from a final fatal destruction by today's 
shameful political greed, indifference, and disrespect. So then we must, from your, from your past, now look to you. You are the giants of tomorrow. When you leave here, remember all those who worked so hard to bring you professionally to where you sit tonight. And never, ever forget that thin green line must now flow to you and through you and past you into the next generation of interpreters. You carry great responsibility, my friends. Become a giant. Wow. I guess I don't know what to add to that because we are getting older and being replaced by younger people. And that's a good thing. And the thin green line remains thin. They're at almost any of these organizations, there aren't enough staff or enough resources to do everything that could be done. And so the people that do it need to be skilled, trained, and thoughtful and as ethical as you've been. I, uh, I've admired you from afar and we've been friends, uh, colleagues at professional meetings. And you just named some of the people I've admired throughout my 55 year career. I, uh, <laughs> some names that I, I've kind of forgotten. Uh, it was a beautiful speech, beautifully written and well said. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. I I don't know whether our future get, lets us cross paths in person or not, but uh, I, I hope it does. And I hope so too, Kim. Well, I wish you well in retirement. Like me, I I know you're still finding things to do because on Facebook I get to see sometimes the reports of birds you're seeing or or what you're doing in Florida. And so, uh, safe travels, and uh, hope you and Kim continue to have a wonderful life on your journey back and forth between your home in Cleveland and your winter uh, trips to Florida. So, take care, my friend. Thank you, sir. You too. At least give my regards to Lisa. I will do so. My next guest in two weeks is going to be Ilan Shamir, an entrepreneur, owner of Your True Nature, a wonderful business that provides a lot of great sales items for interpretive organizations. And there's much more to know about Ilan than that. So uh, I look forward to that conversation. I also want to remind Anyone with an interest in the Certified Interpretive Guide program that I will be offering a course that Lisa and I will teach April 7th to 18th. And you can get more information on that at interpnet.com. And I'd like to also thank, again, Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music. This was Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Hope you have a wonderful week. Aloha. Aloha.